We're in the middle of, well, we're not in the middle yet. We're, uh, we're just starting uh, a new series of messages that we're entitling Once Upon a Time. Last week, I confessed that I had plans to sit in a big recliner with a bubble uh, uh, pipe and read stories to you every Sunday. And I'm not going to do that, but it's still a fun thought, right? And uh, last Sunday, we started this series of, of which we're, we're looking at some pretty spectacular Old Testament stories, some of which many of us, most of us maybe, are even very familiar with, and some of which uh, some of you haven't had the, uh, the time invested yet in a, a church family where you have been told these stories again and again and again. And so uh, last week, we jumped in and we started in Genesis. We started in the beginning, literally Genesis 1-1, and the reminder that God created everything that we have. And I've heard some great feedback in the past week about preaching from uh, Genesis chapter 1 last week. And it's been interesting to have conversations with people in the past several days that have been impacted by what God is doing in our church and how God is reminding us of the core of why it is we believe what we believe. This morning we're going to continue in this idea of uh, once upon a time. We're going to focus at a, a pretty obscure verse in the Bible, a pretty obscure story in the Bible about Lot's wife. Let's call her Mrs. Morton. <laughs> that one was free. That's not even in my notes. That was like shower time this morning. Lot's wife in scripture is a pretty interesting story. Some of you are like, what in the world, Mrs. Moore? I have no idea. Well, you're going to figure it out, okay? Lot's wife in scripture is a pretty small, maybe seemingly insignificant portion of the Old Testament story. And again, it's in Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 18 in just a few moments. But for us to understand why it is we should even consider looking at the story of Lot and his wife, we have to uh, uncover some other uh, portions of scripture that reveal to us who in the world Lot is, right? For us to know who Lot's wife is, we need to know who Lot is. For us to know who Lot is, I think it's important for us to know who Lot's uncle is. Lot, in Scripture, his story starts, we're introduced to Abraham's nephew, Lot, way back in Genesis chapter 13. And Abraham is the father of our faith. Abraham is an important character throughout Scripture. It all hinges on what God has offered through Abraham. God's blessing to Abraham to be faithful to this world and to unite together a nation under this name, Father Abraham. God has truly blessed us as humanity because of the faithfulness of Abraham. But Abraham had a nephew named Lot, and they were traveling together. They were uh, apparently in a large caravan together, and they chose way back in Genesis chapter 13 to, to, to part ways. Abraham and his family members went one direction. Lot and his family members went in another. Abraham headed to the land of Canaan. Lot and his family chose to settle their immediate family near the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You've probably heard of those two cities. They're frequently discussed in church circles sometimes. These two cities were not known for being very popular, very God-fearing or God-honoring. 
But we're introduced to Lot, Abraham's nephew, back in Genesis chapter 13. In Genesis chapter 14, Lot and his family are found, have found themselves mixed up in a mess in the city of Sodom. In fact, some of the enemies of Sodom decided to come and, and, and pilfer Sodom, to take it over, and they did. They were able to achieve that overtake of this city, and they took all the possessions of Sodom into their own possession in including Abraham's nephew Lot and his family and all of his possessions. And Abraham, a God-fearing, righteous man, heard that this had taken place, and he does what I think we often do when we hear that our family is in distress. And he sends 318 ninjas. <laughs> Genesis doesn't really say ninjas, but if you'll let me... The Steven paraphrase says he sent these 318 ninjas into this overtaking city. And he was able, with their might and God's protection, he was able to get Lot and his family out, to recapture the possessions and send them back. And this unique bond between uncle and nephew, this family bond, comes into play here in just a moment. But Sodom and Gomorrah, these two cities are not known in Scripture as, as very positive cities. In fact, uh, they didn't have very good travel brochures to advertise themselves. And it, it, Scripture says this about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 13, 13. The people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. That's not a good byline on your travel brochure to advertise to people to come visit Sodom. A place where we are wicked and far from God. So we get to Genesis chapter 18 for this story of Lot and his wife. And here in Genesis 18, we're going to figure this out. We're going to see exactly what is going on in the story. But here's what happened. Abraham is visited by God in flesh. Somehow, the Lord and two angelic messengers visit Abraham and his family in the land of Canaan. And in God's presence, Abraham has this conversation that's kind of tough for me. In Genesis chapter 18, what unfolds here, starting in verse 20, is nothing short of curious, at the very least. This is the encounter where just before our verses this morning, Abraham is told by God, Abraham and Sarah are told that they would give birth, even in their old age, to a son. So here we go in Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. The Lord says this to Abram. I have heard, the Lord says, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. Verse 22, the other men, the two angelic messengers, turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abram. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose, God, you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely, surely, God, you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why? You, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that, God. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. 
Then Abraham spoke again, since I have begun, since it worked, let me speak further to my Lord. And even though I am but dust and ashes, suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Would you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? The Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Then Abraham pressed his request even further. Suppose there are only 40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 40. Please don't be angry, my Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people? And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I find 30. Then Abraham said, since I have dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only 20? And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me when I speak one more time. Suppose only 10 are found there. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the ten. When the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. It's one thing for me to say, God, I've got a plan, and here it is, and I hope you're okay with it. I don't know about you, but Abraham going before the Lord in this auction house mentality confuses me. It causes me to go, what? And there's a lot of questions surrounding the story. There's a lot of interactions here that take place that make me ask a lot of questions. But what happens next is pretty amazing. God continues to hold... Sodom and Gomorrah to the fire. And what happens, what transpires in this moment is that God does choose to destroy these two cities because he only finds Lot and his family righteous. These two angelic messengers that head on to the city are introduced to Lot and his family and they confirm the wickedness of those living in these two cities and these messengers do in fact find Lot and his family, his wife and his daughters righteous in God's eyes and they are given a way out. That's what I want you to see in this moment. They are given salvation from true and utter destruction. They are given salvation and told to flee the city and find refuge in the nearby city of Zoar. And in this instruction that they're given by these two angelic messengers, they are told very specifically in Genesis chapter 19 verse 17, they are told this, run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. I want us to get this in just a moment here. Lot and his family are found righteous. They are but a a family of four, according to Scripture, found righteous in, in two cities of we don't know how many. Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. These four, identified by God as ones who are righteous. And they have been marked by God. They have been stamped by God. They have been told by God what it takes to be saved from utter destruction. They are told in perfect detail what they must do to be saved from the sure destruction that would be headed 
to Sodom and Gomorrah. We pick up in the story, and here's where we meet Mrs. Morton. Genesis chapter 19, verse 23. They start running. Verse 23, Lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them, along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. Then one verse, verse 26. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Abraham got up early that morning and hurried out to the place where he stood in the Lord's presence. He looked out across the plain towards Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace. But God had listened to Abraham's request and he kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plain. And there we have it. Not a chapter... Not a group of verses, really. A verse about Lot's wife. Now again, if you read on, and I would encourage you to read on if you want to have more questions than answers. The story of Lot and his family, Lot and his daughters, gets kind of crazy in the next couple of verses. And we have more questions than answers about these who have been found righteous, who take matters into their own hands, following after generations before and generations since. But here we have this very simple verse that explains to us exactly what happened to Lot's wife. She is found guilty of not following God's law, God's command, God's instruction. And in an instant, she changes from being a human being to being a pillar of salt. Specifically this morning, I think it's worth addressing the fact that Jesus himself references this woman who we know very little about. Jesus, in the New Testament, talks to his disciples, and we're going to look at Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 17, but Jesus, in his language about, his prophetic language about his second coming, about his return to this earth, he uses this phrase, remember Lot's wife. In his instructions to those who are closest to him, he commands them and us to remember something about Lot's wife. Again, he doesn't say in this moment about the second coming, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't say in this moment, hey, remember Abraham's faithfulness. Some pillars of the faith that we have, that we love to focus our attention on. Instead, Jesus, in this moment, to his disciples, as he is talking about things that would come to pass, includes Lot's wife for some reason. Look at Luke chapter 17 and verses 30 to 35. Jesus says, yes, it will be business as usual, normal, right? Uh, Up to the day when the Son of Man is revealed, when 
Jesus returns. On that day, a person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return home. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. Verse 32. Verse 33, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. And if you let it go, you will save it. That night, specifically, Jesus projecting this idea, two people will be asleep in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken, the other one left. Now, it's obvious, I think, that Jesus is giving some context clues about what is going to happen in the day that he returns to rapture his church. Jesus is giving some context clues. He's giving some uh, pretty easy illustrations for us to understand. He says, for the, for the one on the housetop, when the Son of Man returns, the, the one on the housetop is not to go back inside and grab their smartphone to take pictures and upload them to Instagram. You see that? For the one out in the field, don't run back home to get your keys. You don't need them. Jesus then says that one very specific phrase. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. All these years later, in describing what his second coming will look like to his disciples, he references a woman that we literally only have one verse about what happened to Lot's wife. But the circumstances surrounding her story are worth noting. I propose for us this morning three simple things that we should remember about Lot's wife, Mrs. Morton Salt. First this, remember her privilege. Remember her privileges. Lot's wife, let me spell it out for you. She looks a lot like us. Married, married to a faithful man, married to a man who feared God and taught his family to do the same. Married to a a, a man raised in a family in this moment that proclaimed God as king. I don't know what exactly her dinnertime conversations were like, but I, I imagine they prayed together. I imagine they talked about how wicked their city was and how faithful God was and their mission to their city as a family. Her privilege, she was raised to know what God's standard was like. She lived in a time where many had turned their back on God and yet she and her family stood firm in their faith to follow after God, to have knowledge of who he was and his teaching. She knew how to worship the one true God. Her privilege, she was also warned. Guys, she was warned by an angel. By an angelic messenger from God himself that stayed in her home. She was told that her city would be utterly destroyed. That it would be wiped from the face of the earth. That it would be completely wiped out. That destruction would be swift. That everything around her would be destroyed. That every man, woman, child, every everything she could imagine would be gone because of the wrath of God 
Because God hates sin. She was warned. Verbatim, she was told by a messenger of God that this would be happening. She had every privilege. She had every knowledge. She had every known reality was given to her, was hand-delivered to her, that this is the way the story would play out. She was told to escape for her life. She was given a second chance. She was shown the way to salvation. She was told perfectly clear not to wait and not to look back, to flee and don't turn around. Don't give in to the temptation. Don't look back. Remember her privilege. We need to also remember her sin. Lot's wife's sin was willful disobedience. The angel told her literally, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away like everything around you. And she disregarded, she willfully disobeyed. Maybe we think she didn't do anything super bad. I have those thoughts. But she disregarded this heaven-sent warning, and she turned and looked back. She went against what she was told by God. Remember her sin. Her sin was also a sin of unbelief. For some reason, she must have not believed the angel's warning. Right? She must have thought, I, I know what I was told, but I, I just don't know. She disregarded the urgency of their warning. She disregarded uh, exactly what she was told. She said, I, I have a better plan for myself. I have my own desire. The instructions were absolutely clear, but she chose not to heed the warning completely. Remember her sin. Remember, too, that it was a sinful act. She gave in to temptation. She was bombarded. Can you imagine what was going through her mind? Can you imagine the temptation that led up to her pausing in her tracks just to turn to check? Can you imagine what was going on in her mind? She was thinking things like, surely God wouldn't punish me if I just turned around in my sorrow, in my well-being. I don't know what was going on in her mind, but... Can I join you in the feeling? Can we admit together that we, we sometimes look at this story? If you've been raised in the church, we sometimes look at this story and we're like, she didn't kill anyone. She didn't build an altar to an unknown God and start worshiping him. Can we go as far to say it's not fair? It's not fair that God would punish Someone like Lot's wife for what she did. And can I say as quickly as those thoughts come to my heart and my mind, woe to me if I feel like my level of justice, my attempts at holiness are ever up to par with the perfect God who demands holiness. 
That's why it's hard for us to stomach a story about Lot's wife is because we so often we put ourselves in the place of, of God and we think, oh, I wouldn't do so mean of something. I, I wouldn't have such a quick reaction. I would never have turned someone into a salt lick. I can't imagine, right? The reminder is she sinned against God. And we look at it and we're like, well, she didn't do anything compared to what I've done. Right? That should overwhelm you this morning at the gift of grace. When we remember the sin of Lot's wife, it should cause us to pause in our tracks and ask the question, how dare I willfully disobey what God has commanded, what God has instructed, what God desires from me? We cannot put ourselves in God's shoes. We cannot minimize how quickly we minimize our objections to God's law. How careful we must be to not allow our wandering minds to lead us to sin. Remember Lot's wife. Third, remember her fate. Remember what happened to her in the moment. Remember first that it, it, it was earned. She had been warned. She had been implored. She had been spoken to. The warning was more than enough. And the reality is the wages of sin is death. We know it from the New Testament. The wage, what we deserve. When we think, oh, it's not fair what she got. Woe to us if we would ever buy into that fully. The way, what we earn from birth, what we are given from the moment we enter into this sinful world, the, the wage of our life, the way we are headed is to an eternity away from God, separated forever from God because of our life of sin. No matter how little, no matter how big, our sin removes us from the presence of God. But Jesus... Remember her fate. Remember that it was unexpected. It was holy, sudden. If she had believed in the result of her disobedience, I don't think she would have done it. But in a moment, I don't know exactly how, but we've seen artist renderings, right? We've seen some pretty interesting video illustrations, if you look for them of what it must have been like in the moment that she turned. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 1 says this, the reminder for you and for me again this morning in the NIV, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Suddenly, her fate was made known. It was also final. As we remember Lot's wife and her fate, know that it was final. There was no coming back. It was the end for her. The chances for safe passage of the impending doom on Sodom and Gomorrah were over for Lot's wife. The, the salvation moment, the hand of mercy and, and grace was withdrawn in a moment and she was turned forever. 
and to one who would never be in God's presence. So what? Remember Lot's wife. Jesus just works that phrase into his instruction about the second coming. We work it into a Sunday morning when we're looking back at stories from the Old Testament on, on purpose to help us reflect and remember some of the most incredible things from God's Word. I think there's some practical things that we need to take note of this morning. We need to be aware of the things that hold us back. Right? I don't know what was going on in her mind in that moment, in Lot's wife's mind in that moment, for her to decide against all good knowledge to turn and reflect upon her city. But I think we live in a time where we are held back from fully engaging in the relationship God wants to have with us by so many Sodom and Gomorrahs. So much stuff in our life that gets between us and God. And we need to be aware of those things that continue to hold us back from truly following after what God has asked us to do. Some of you in this room today, you know that God has asked you to do something specific for him. And you're saying in this season of your life, ah, I got to wait until my kids are in or out of high school. I gotta wait until I've raised X amount of dollars. I've gotta raise, I gotta, I gotta wait until something else works out first. Beware of the things that are holding you back from fully surrendering to God's will and God's way. Second reminder and beware of questioning God's commands. God instructed Lot and his family not to turn around. God's commands for us are many. He continues to reveal them to us every day as we surrender to his will and his way, as we follow along his instructions through his word. He reveals himself every single day if we will listen. Beware of questioning God's commands. Do you know that we live in a culture that will no doubt continue to minimize the impact, continue to minimize the validity, continue to minimize the way we as Christians are to hold God's word. Our culture will never hold God's word to the place that it needs to be held in our lives. It's high time. We stop waiting for someone else to put this book first and we put it first in our own lives. We need to beware of delays. Beware of delays. Jesus famously said today is the day of salvation in the New Testament in his ministry when those who would surrender their life I think of Zacchaeus who made right, who repented of his sins. Jesus earmarked that moment of surrender and transformation. And he said today, salvation has come to this house. Can I tell you how blessed we are to live under the grace of Jesus Christ? The hand of mercy is being extended to us. Your sins, if you are bought with the precious blood of Jesus, are forgiven, though many. 
And today, today that salvation is being still made available. That gift of grace is still being told to us every single day. The instructions are being given to us by angelic messengers from heaven. They are reminding you and me right now of what it takes to be saved from utter destruction, eternity away from God. We know the truth. Jesus is that way. Jesus is salvation full and free. Salvation can be yours today if you will surrender everything to Him. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the hope for humanity. That's why I'm standing up here this morning. I hope that's why you're here today. We're going to change gears and we're going to enjoy something that Christians have been doing for centuries. We're going to partake of the Lord's table. We have before us simple elements of a wafer, cracker, and grape juice. And just as Jesus instructed us to remember Lot's wife, as we reflect upon the coming of Jesus his second time. Jesus also required us to remember the gift he would be giving on the cross. The Apostle Paul recorded it in 1 Corinthians to early Christians this way. Listen to this. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this. Eat this in remembrance of me. Remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant, the new promise between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this, drink this in remembrance of me as often as you do. Jesus said, Remember my gift. Remember my grace. Remember what it means to be free in Christ. Will you stand and bow your heads with me for just a moment? I'm going to ask our pastors to come forward and we'll set up three stations right here at the front. And we invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have experienced salvation full and free, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, then you are welcome to partake of communion here at Hyde Wesleyan Church this morning. We invite you to come forward. And to stand here and receive these elements of bread and juice. And then we just ask you quietly to slip back to your seat on the outside aisles. You can come through on these three center sections. Receive these elements. And quietly reflect upon what grace means. What grace does to and for you. Let's pray.